Lord, we have sung this morning of your glory, your goodness, and your power. You are the almighty God who is worthy of our songs, our praises, worthy of our love, worthy of our obedience and our service. We belong to you. And Lord, our desire this morning is that Christ would be all, that as we look into your word, as we gaze into your law, that we would see uh, our need for a savior, that we would remember what it is that Christ has done for us, that we bring nothing to the table, no merit of our own, no worthiness, but yet you give yourself to us freely by grace. So, Lord, as we receive today your mercy and your grace, as we remember your work on our behalf, I pray that you'd give us a desire to love you with all our heart, a desire to live for your glory, a desire to please you and honor you with not just songs of worship, but a life that worships you. So, Lord, we come to you this morning with these words on our lips, these thoughts in our hearts, and we pray that you would be honored, magnified, glorified, give us hearts that are open and teachable as we look into your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill this morning and ask you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. See a couple new faces if I haven't got a chance to meet you. My name's JD. I serve as one of the pastors here. And we've been going through the book of Exodus over the last several months. And today's text is a very short text. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It's the Eighth Commandment. We've been taking week by week each of these Ten Commandments, these ten words spoken by God on Mount Sinai to his people. And just to remind you, this isn't God telling Moses something to write down and tell the people. Uh, this, these ten words that were spoken were audibly spoken by God. With thunder, with lightning, with earthquake, God's people heard these words. It was an essential foundational aspect of their covenant with God. And these words speak to us today. And the words of the Eighth Commandment, verse 15, are this. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. There is a dark human impulse to take something that's not yours. And we've all seen it. In fact, we've all done it in one way or another. And as I was thinking about this sin, the sin of stealing, theft, breaking the Eighth Commandment, I was realizing this week it's probably one of the first physical sins that we commit. I mean, sin is, is always something that starts in the heart, and it's something that we give voice to with our words. But think about how this is an act often that involves the body, physically stealing. And so as a, a little baby who has sin in his heart, in her heart, gets to the point where they can actually move around, you know, get from point A to point B. Maybe they're crawling, walking, or just, you know, hanging on to stuff and working their way across the room. One of the first things a child will do is take something that is not theirs. In fact, this sin's probably happening in our nursery right now. We probably have some Eighth Commandment violations going on as we speak. And some people will say, well, take it easy on the babies. They don't really understand. They have no concept of private property. They have no, no understanding of what it means to share and why that's important. But I think they really do understand. A baby understands very clearly, you have something that I want, so I will take it. If it were simply a lack of understanding in the part of our adorable children, then you'd think that this behavior of stealing would somehow come to an end as soon as 
They can learn to communicate and reason. As soon as you can explain, listen, sweetie, that's not yours. You can't take it. But the fact is we do come to understand private property. We do learn the importance of not stealing and that it's wrong. But that doesn't deter us. It just means that our stealing becomes more deceptive as we grow older. It becomes more complex. It becomes more subtle because we know what's socially acceptable. And we also know how to get away with things. While there's always going to be smash and grab thieves, we live in a world where white collar crimes like embezzling and insurance fraud and tax evasion are realities. We live in a world where it's considered a small matter to steal time from your employer or to download digital content without paying for it or to fill up your glass with Coke at the soda fountain when you only paid for water. Nobody thinks those things are a big deal. And there's countless other ways in which stealing happens every day. Yet God's word speaks to us with clarity and with eternal authority. You shall not steal. The Eighth Commandment was an essential building block for Israel's constitution. To remind us of where we're at here in Exodus, God has redeemed this people, this chosen people, out of Egypt. He's rescued them from slavery. And he's not done that just to turn them loose so they can do whatever they want and live for themselves. He redeemed them, he rescued them, brought them out of slavery through the Red Sea so that they would serve him. And he offers to them this this covenant relationship at Sinai. And the people had said, everything that the Lord commands, we will do. So there is a new nation being formed here. And this commandment is an essential part of this covenant with God. It's a necessary rule for them to have this just and righteous society that God intended. So though we are not under this old covenant, we're not, we're not at Sinai today. However, these commandments do reveal to us God's moral will for his people for all ages. The moral foundation for that society and for that covenant. Those moral foundations apply today. And this is God's word to us. Those who fear God and those who desire to worship him and live a life that is pleasing to him. Those who have received so much grace ought to affirm and obey these words. The central idea this morning is this, that loving God and loving neighbor requires honoring the principle of ownership. Loving God and loving neighbor, which is a summary of the Ten Commandments, those two tables of the law. Loving God and loving neighbor requires honoring the principle of ownership. In order to rightly honor this principle of ownership, we have to understand two key principles, and I'll share those with you this morning. Number one, God forbids us to take what he has not given us. This is his will. This is his law. He forbids us to take something wrongfully, unlawfully, that he has not given to us. That's what stealing is, taking from another something that doesn't belong to you. And the prohibition here in Exodus 20 is broad. It's very open-ended. Think about that. Again, this is one of those two-word commandments in the Hebrew language. Never steal. And the fact that it's open-ended means it's not necessarily specifying what it is that we cannot steal. It's a comprehensive command. That means it applies to everything. A quick survey of the Old Testament shows us they were not to steal land. Deuteronomy 19.14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set. 
in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. That's an application of this commandment. They were not to steal money. This can be done in various ways. You can steal money through cheating. Proverbs 20 verse 10 says, Unequal weights and measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. People would go to the marketplace and they would have one measuring cup for buying and another measuring cup for selling. And so you might sell two and buy three, but you come out always ahead. That's stealing. They were not to steal money in the sense of they were forbidden to to charge excessive amounts of interest. Exodus 22-25 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor. So this is someone who is at the end of the rope, who has no other options, who's destitute and is forced to borrow money to survive. He says, don't prey upon those people. There's not to be this predatory lending. He says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. They could steal money also through withholding wages. This was forbidden in Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. It says, listen, if you hire somebody to do a job, you pay them when the job is complete. You pay them. Withholding wages is stealing. So they're not to steal land. They're not to steal money. They're not to steal animals. Exodus 22.1 says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. You cannot steal. They are not to steal people. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. This commandment condemns what happened in the United States in terms of slavery. The kind of slavery that existed here would have been punishable by death under Old Testament law. Both the supply and the demand. If you're the one selling or if you're the one in possession of a human being who's been stolen. God says that person shall die. You're not allowed to steal people. So the command here is broad, and we could go on and on and add many things to the list. These are just examples of how the Eighth Commandment was applied in Old Testament society. But the point I'm making is that the command is broad. It does not refer to what cannot be stolen, and so it applies to all these things and more. We shouldn't steal money or material goods or time or intellectual property or anything. But the command is also broad in the sense that it doesn't specify whom we are not to steal from. We're not to steal from, therefore, anyone. This would include our neighbor. We don't steal from neighbors. This comes in the portion of the Ten Commandments that's speaking about how we relate to our neighbors. We don't steal from them. We're not to steal also from family. Cheating siblings out of inheritance money is stealing. Taking advantage of elderly parents is stealing. Kids, taking something from your parents that is not yours is stealing. We're not to steal from family. We're not to steal from a business. We're not to steal from the government. Jesus affirms the right of the government to charge money for taxes. And we're to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. And we're also not to steal from God. We dare not steal his glory from him. We dare not rob him by keeping back that which he calls us to give, be it our time or our money or our talent. 
So there's no qualifications here as to, well, you can't steal from these people or these entities, but you can steal from the others. No, it's open-ended. You can't steal anything from anyone. You shall not steal. So a question we often ask as we're going through these commandments is why? Because the Ten Commandments here just speak with authority. Don't do this because I told you so. And that should be good enough for us. Remember, this is God speaking. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if he says it, that should be enough. But there are reasons why God gives us these commandments. There's good reasons. But there's also some bad reasons to not steal. And if you think about why we don't see more theft in our own society, sometimes people have reasons, but those reasons don't carry us far enough. For some people, the reason they don't steal isn't because they have this internal sense of right and wrong because they have a sensitive conscience. It's rather because of the unpleasant consequences of getting caught. And we know this is their main motivation because what happens when those consequences are removed? What happens when you can go into a store and take anything you want? People do. What happens when you can get away with tax evasion? You do it. Many people steal because they know they won't get caught. So fear of consequences isn't a sufficient deterrent. I think probably, though, a a more common reason why many people today, people outside the church, people who don't believe Scripture, people who don't fear God, many of them think stealing is wrong. And they would say, well, stealing is wrong because of how it hurts people. It causes harm to others, and so therefore we shouldn't do it. And I'm thankful that many people have this impulse. And to be sure, there is a measure of truth to this. Stealing is sin against neighbor, as we said. You can think about how stealing really is oppression of others. Stealing a man's cloak, for example, leaves him cold at night. Stealing a man's animal in Old Testament society, would have left him unable to farm and to feed his family. Stealing food would have caused hunger. Stealing a person, kidnapping a person to sell them into slavery, would have robbed that person of their future and would have destroyed their family. Moving a boundary marker would have deprived future generations of their land inheritance, and so on and so forth. Yes, stealing does harm people, but there are many times when theft doesn't appear to hurt anyone. Maybe you've heard this kind of logic before. Well, I'm only stealing from a company, a corporation. I'm not harming a person. I'm not taking food out of anyone's mouth. That's a rationale that people use. Or perhaps this, well, they have insurance, and in fact, they build certain amount of losses into their profit margin, so they plan to offset that. This isn't going to hurt anybody. Or how about this? Yes, I'm stealing from a person, but they are rich, and they don't need it, and they won't miss it. They don't need it as much as I do. And so my need justifies stealing. Or some might even say, well, that person acquired these things through questionable means. They don't deserve to have it, so it's okay for me to steal it. I'm not hurting them. You see, if our only motive for not stealing, if the only reason why is that stealing harms another person, It won't take us far enough. People will use many of these justifications to excuse the sin of theft. But notice that the Eighth Commandment doesn't come to us with a set of exceptions. It doesn't say that theft is only wrong when you steal from a person. It doesn't say that theft is only wrong when it deprives someone of something that they need. 
No, it's actually not about measuring who needs it more or who deserves it more. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, verse 9, Paul gives instruction for slaves, for bondservants. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Pilfering is stealing. It's helping yourself, skimming a little bit off the top, taking a little bit here and there. Not pilfering, Paul says, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here's the amazing point that Paul makes. Socioeconomic status is no excuse for stealing. Just because you're a slave and he's the master, no matter how you two got into those various positions, doesn't make stealing okay. The biblical priority here is not equity in society. It's not equal outcomes and equal ownership by all. No, the priority is righteousness in society. Righteousness. And so Paul can tell slaves not to steal from their masters. So if those are insufficient reasons, if just the consequences or trying not to hurt anyone, if that's not enough to help us understand why we shouldn't steal. I'd like to give you a few additional reasons why violating this commandment is wrong. Number one, stealing violates God's assignment of private property. It violates God's assignment of private property. Psalm 24.1 tells us that everything ultimately belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's, David writes, and the fullness thereof. That means everything in it. The world and those who dwell therein. God owns property. God owns possessions. God owns persons. God owns it all because he made it all. He owns everything, but what God does is he gives to mankind. Acts chapter 17 verse 25 reminds us that God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That includes possessions. That includes your time. That includes your money. Everything we have belongs to God, but he's entrusted some of that to us. And so we are owners in a sense, but we're secondary owners. We're more like managers. The biblical term is stewards. And so the reason that private property must be respected, the reason why you could even say private property is sacred, is because it recognizes this principle, that God has given it, that God has sovereignly assigned it to people or corporations or to governments or whatever it may be. And so when we steal, get this, we are rebelling against God's sovereign assignment of possessions to his creatures. Many people think the right to private property is a feature of Western civilization, that it's just part of capitalism and it's something uniquely American, but it's not. The biblical law recognizes and assumes and enforces the rights of private property. So it's wrong for us to steal because when we do so, we are violating God's assignment of private property. A second reason why it's wrong for us to steal, and this gets more at the heart. We're starting now to talk about things at the spiritual level. Stealing, when we take something that's not ours, and we're willing to transgress God's law in order to do it, it shows that we're making too much of things. We're making too much of things. The reality is, Yes, there's many things out there that we desire. There's many things that we own, many things that we may need. But the fact is, you can't take it all with you. You just can't. You can't. 
And it is foolish to live for material gain. It is foolish to transgress God's law in order to get something that we think is so important that it's worth sinning for. 1 Timothy 6-7 reminds us, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. As has been said often, maybe you've heard it, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. And when we steal, we're making too much of things, treating them as more important than they really are. Jesus told a parable about a foolish man, a wealthy man who tore down his barns in order to build bigger ones. In Luke 12, verse 20, God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus calls that man a fool. A fool because he spends his life trying to get stuff. And then he's going to die. And somebody else is going to have it. And what's the point? It's a waste. It's a waste. Ecclesiastes captures this wise perspective for us. Ecclesiastes 5.10. The preacher writes... He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or emptiness. It's worthless. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? This is the biblical version of more money, more problems. Okay, you get more stuff, more money, more things, and then there's more people who want a piece of the pie and, and really, the only benefit to you is you get to know that you have more things. Other than that, it does nothing for you. When we steal, we make too much of things. And this is wrong. Ultimately, a third reason, ultimately, the reason that stealing is wrong is it reveals sin in the heart. All sin starts in the heart. Stealing reveals a heart of envy and covetousness. Resenting the fact that someone else has something that I don't. And I want it. It reveals a heart of unbelief. We steal sometimes because we're afraid. We don't believe that God will meet our needs. If I'm honest on my taxes, I won't have enough to make it. If I'm honest with my employer about how many hours I worked last week, I won't be able to pay the electric bill. If I'm honest about about some of these investments, then maybe I won't have enough for retirement to be comfortable That's unbelief. Stealing shows that you don't think God can meet your needs and that he will, that he's good, that he provides. It reveals a heart of idolatry. Stealing shows that we are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's really why it's so wrong to make too much of things. We're worshiping things instead of God, the creation rather than the creator, obsessing over gifts instead of worshiping the giver. And it shows a dissatisfaction with God's provision. Stealing says, God, I know you've given me this, but that's not enough. And I'm not okay with that. It's an offense to God. Stealing reveals sin in the heart. It makes too much of things. It violates God's assignment of private property. It's a sin against neighbor. And so the Eighth Commandment forbids it. You shall not Steal. Loving God and loving neighbor requires honoring this principle of ownership. That what God has assigned to others belongs to them. What he has assigned to me belongs to me. And I'm to respect those boundaries. 
We need this prohibition that God forbids stealing. It's helpful to us. It shows us what pleases God and how we are to live. But honoring this principle of ownership involves not just recognizing the prohibition. As with all of these commandments, there's a a positive side. There's a flip side to the coin. Not only does God forbid us taking what he has not given to us, but secondly, God calls us to be generous stewards of what he has given us. This is the inversion or the opposite, the reverse of stealing. To be generous stewards of what God has given us. The opposite of stealing is not just not stealing. It's giving. It's giving. To willingly give to others what God has given to us. Consider this. The God we worship is a God who gives. He's a giving God. And the most stunning gift of all, the greatest gift imaginable, the most costly gift, the most precious gift, the most valuable gift is that God has given us himself. John chapter 3 and verse 16, these familiar words, listen to them as if you've not heard them before. I know this is familiar. It tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. There's no greater gift. There's nothing more precious or valuable. There's nothing that would have been harder for God to give. There's nothing that would have shown more love or more generosity. There's nothing that we could have been less deserving of. God is infinite in his glory and his worth, and he gives himself to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God is a giving God. We worship a God who has given us himself, and this is the proof of his goodness and grace. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, the reality is this God who has given us himself is not done giving. He gave us his son, yes, but he did this so that he might give us life, so that he might give us his spirit, so that he might bring us into a new family in the church, so that he might give us a new identity, so that he could give us a resurrection body, so that he could give us a future eternal inheritance, so that he could give us eternal joy in glory with Christ. That is what God gives to us. All of this and more is given to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ in his finished work on the cross. God is a God who gives. Now, why do we say all that? Why do we need to start there and remember that truth about God? For this reason. God does not call us to do something that he is not willing to do himself. In fact, God has perfectly modeled this generous giving. And he intends for you And for me to not only receive this gift with faith and joy and gratitude, he also intends for us to follow his example, to be a people who give to others. We as God's people are to be like him. And we're to be like him in this way, at this specific point. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We're supposed to be like God in certain ways. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And he tells us in the next breath what it looks like to imitate God. 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's what love does. It gives. And that's what we are to imitate. The loving, gracious giving of our God is supposed to shape the way that we, as his people, live. You see, the gospel is supposed to bring about in us a radical change of heart. The impulse to steal, to take what is not ours, to deprive someone else, to satisfy our own desires and our own lusts. The grace of the gospel transforms that heart into a desire to give and to bless and to serve. The person who's been redeemed by God, for them, selfishness starts to be transformed into sacrifice. Greed becomes generosity. Robbing others becomes instead serving others. God gives in order to make us givers. He loves in order to produce love in us. And this is the goal, one of the goals, of his giving. Titus 2.14 says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zeal is a strong desire and enthusiasm and excitement to do the things that please God, zealous for good works, zealous not to take, zealous not to enrich ourselves, zealous not to use other people for our own benefit, no, zealous for good works. These good works include generosity to those who are in need. Just like the early believers in Acts, like the churches that sent relief to Jerusalem in the first century, We are to be generous to meet the needs of the body of Christ. We're supposed to take care of our family. There's to be a spirit of generosity and sacrifice. That is the inverse of this sinful impulse to steal and take and profit from other people's losses. It's a desire to meet needs and to give away what God has entrusted to us. We're to meet needs in the body of Christ. And like the Good Samaritan, when we have opportunity and ability, we're supposed to meet the needs of others, those around us, those we don't even know. There are some who would nod eagerly at this point and point out that in in Acts chapter 4, the early church seems to have abandoned this idea of private property. There's this sort of social idea, this communal life in Acts chapter 4. That's what some people claim. Acts 4.32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. It's a beautiful example of what the church is supposed to do and to be. And it shows the change that had taken place. These people are of one heart and one soul. But I don't think that Acts chapter 4 is abolishing private property. It's not the abolishing of private property that erased the needs in Acts chapter 4. No, it was the generous use of private property that ensured that every need was met. As you read through that text, you see countless repetitions. Well, not countless, there's four. 
So I did count them. But there's several repetitions of this word for ownership or owned or possessions. So it's not that they erased those distinctions. It's that they used them in the right way. They used them to meet the needs of others and by doing this showed love for neighbor and love for God. There's a big difference here. Big difference between eradicating private property and sort of having a a socialism of sorts that's going on in the church. There's a big difference between that and the generous, voluntary, willing giving of people out of what they own to meet the needs of others. That is the pattern for the church. The gospel does not destroy the concept of ownership. It gives it purpose. It gives it purpose. We own things. God gives things to us so that we might be good stewards of those things and use them for his glory. Some of that means our needs will be met. But some of that means we will have enough to meet the needs of others. We are stewards who recognize that everything we own ultimately belongs to God. And one of the things he wants us to do with his money is meet the needs of those around us. So this good work that we are called to includes generosity to those who are in need. But let's not stop there. Some people think that generosity and giving is only when there's a demonstrable need and it's a critical need. But I think it goes beyond that. The good work that we're to be zealous to do is not limited to helping those in crisis. It includes things like hospitality. We ought to be the kind of people who delight to bless the people that we share life with. The people in our family, the people in our neighborhood, the people in our church community. We should enjoy sharing meals with other people. We should be eager to share our time, to be hospitable with our time, with our home, with our plans and our schedules. Not just opening up our wallet, but opening up our life to be generous in spirit, hospitable to the people around us. Jesus was always giving himself. Yes, he met needs, but he also sought to bless the people around him. He washed his disciples' feet. He provided food. He was showing that he was the one who meets our needs and modeling for his followers what it looks like to love other people and serve them. So yes, we ought to meet needs when there's crisis and critical issues like that, but there should also be a spirit of hospitality about those who love Christ, an eagerness to share and bless the people that we share life with. And then this spirit of generosity is also demonstrated in the way that we worship God with our giving. The reason we give here at Redemption Hill Church is not just to keep the lights on. It's not just to pay off this amazing building that God has provided for us. It's it's not even just to pay salaries or other things like that. In fact, I'm going to talk about giving here for a moment, but this is not some sort of like capital campaign where we're trying to get more money. God has blessed us. There is plenty of money coming in, which is amazing. But I want to encourage you to continue to give. Not because we need it, because we really don't need more right this minute. Who knows what tomorrow holds, but we don't need more. But your giving is not just an act of supporting the local ministry of the church, although it is that. Your giving is an act of worship to God. When we give of our money or anything else, we are telling God, God, you own everything I have. It's all a gift from you. And I desire to show you, and to maybe show my family as we make this decision together, I desire to show that I love you more than I love my money. That I trust you enough to give 
because I know you'll provide for me tomorrow. That I'm thankful for everything you've given me and I desire to give it back to you. Giving is worship. It's worship. We don't just pay bills at church when we do the offering. It's worship. And when we don't give to God, we rob him. Malachi 3.8 says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. God says when his people don't give to him, we rob him. Again, not that God needs our money. He doesn't. But we rob him of the worship and the love and the trust and the obedience that he deserves. Many people will ask about tithing and percentages. And the New Testament tells us, or rather it doesn't tell us, that we're bound to give a certain percentage. Uh, the, the tithe, the 10% is sort of a traditional rule that comes out of the Old Testament. But if you do all the math and add up what the people in the Old Testament gave, it was a lot more than 10%. 10% was just basically sort of like the, the income tax part of it. There was a lot of other gifts and, and offerings and tithes that they did. But in the New Testament, we're not bound to a certain percentage necessarily. There's no rule for how much we are to give. But if our giving is an act of worship then it ought to have something about it that reflects what that woman did when she shattered that jar of precious ointment. Doing something that to everyone around her looked wasteful, looked crazy, because she believed that Jesus was precious and she desired to honor him and to worship him. So we, I won't give you a percentage on how much you should give, but if there's nothing that smells like that beautiful picture of worship about your giving, you're probably doing it wrong. Like the Magi who brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, we are to come and lay our gifts at Jesus' feet simply because he is worthy. Listen, Christ is worthy of everything we can give and more and more. And we rob him. We rob him of his glory when we fail to worship him by giving to him. So ultimately, this spirit of generosity, this desire to give sacrificially, whether it be to, to our neighbors or to our church family or to the Lord himself, this desire to give, this spirit of generosity is sort of the mirror negative of that sinful impulse to steal. And what it is, is evidence of a changed heart, evidence of a changed life. And this is one of the things that should mark us as different from the world. Ephesians 4.28, Paul instructs believers. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Listen, there is a right and good way to acquire wealth, to acquire goods, to acquire possessions, and it's to work not to steal. But the Christian motive for work is more than just acquiring things for self. The Christian is to work and labor to acquire money and possessions so that they may give. College student, get good grades, get a great job, go out and make as much money as you can so that you will be free to serve the Lord and give more than anybody else. That would be an awesome thing. It'd be an awesome thing. You know, there's three basic attitudes, according to Jerry Bridges, towards material possessions. And he just sums everything up so well, I'm just going to borrow his words, not steal them, because I'm giving uh, 
proper accreditation here. So this is Jerry Bridges' words, not mine. But he says there's three attitudes towards stuff, towards material possessions. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. Or what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. I think we can't sum it up any better than that. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. That's the attitude of stealing. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. That's a failure to give and be generous, also a sin. What's mine is God's, I'll share it. That's the transformed heart. That's the perspective God wants us to have towards stuff, money, time, possessions. So which one describes you? Which one describes you? Are you the kind of person who says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it? Are you the kind of person who maybe doesn't steal, but you say, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it? Or has your heart been touched by the grace of God, the one who gives himself to us? And you're able to say, maybe not perfectly, but truly, what's mine is God's and I'll share it. I think it's not an overstatement to say that every sin is really a theft of sorts. You might say, I don't think I've stolen anything, J.D., that I can remember. Um, Maybe you can say that. I don't think many people can. Although it's kind of funny, several years ago, there was uh, a a survey that went out among American Christians, and 86% of them claimed they had never violated the Eighth Commandment. Maybe that's true. Maybe they just have a, maybe they're breaking the Ninth Commandment, which is not to bear false witness. I don't know. Um, But I think probably the reason is we have a really shallow understanding of what it means to steal. And we need a broader vision. And I think that, in a sense, every sin is a kind of theft, a theft of God's glory, robbing him of the obedience and worship that he deserves. When you and I take the breath and the body and the time and the mind that God gave us, and we use it for ourselves instead of for him, we're stealing and we're guilty, which is bad news because it means we're all thieves. This is a den of thieves this morning. We are all lawbreakers, and we are deserving of judgment. And maybe you haven't ever thought of yourself as a thief before, but it's true. That's bad news. But it gives new and fresh significance, I think, to the story of what happened as Christ hung on the cross. As you know, there were three men who were crucified that day. Jesus was hung to die between two thieves. Matthew's account tells us that the robbers both reviled him. They joined in with the soldiers and with the religious leaders, and they mocked him. But Luke tells us that one of those men had a change of heart at some point. Luke records this amazing conversation in Luke chapter 23. You can turn there. I want you to to see this because it's really beautiful. Luke 23, verse 39 Luke 23, 39 tells us one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross was guilty. He was deserving of judgment, and he knew it. But he came to realize the stark difference between him and Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Jesus was the Messiah, and there was a kingdom coming. And his response to Jesus in this moment models for us how we must all come to terms with our sin. And we how, how we must all come to terms with our need for Christ. What this man did on the cross was threefold. He confessed his sin. He said, we deserve what we're getting. He believed in Jesus. His reference to the kingdom shows he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He believes there is a kingdom coming. He believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. And then he simply asked for mercy. He said, will you remember me? Remember me when you come into your kingdom? He didn't negotiate. He didn't make excuses. He didn't justify. He simply asked for mercy. And what did Jesus say to him? How did Jesus reply? The way that Jesus answered that thief on the cross is the same way that he will answer you today. If you will come to terms with your sin and confess it before him. If you will acknowledge in faith who Jesus Christ is and believe in him. And if you will simply ask for mercy, Jesus will say, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus will extend forgiveness because Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. Jesus' death that day made it possible for lawbreakers like you and me to be reconciled to God. You know, this man who died there next to Jesus that day, he had spent his whole life trying to get something in this world, something that he thought he needed, something that he wanted because he thought it would make him happy, he thought it would make him secure, or he thought it would buy his freedom. But his sinful pursuits only led to a bitter end. But at that end, in Jesus, he found something better. And Jesus offers himself to us today. What is it that you seek? What is it that you think you need? What is it that you might be tempted to steal in order to get? Something better is found in Christ. And if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin this morning, perhaps you have stolen, or perhaps you've not been generous and given the way that the Eighth Commandment requires let me exhort you this morning to lay aside your sins and confess them. To cry out for mercy, confess Jesus as Lord, and receive the promise of forgiveness. Receive the assurance of pardon that is found in the words of Jesus on the cross to that thief. Yes, I will remember you. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That same grace and mercy and forgiveness is offered to you today. Father, I want to pray and ask that you would work in the hearts of all who are gathered here today. Many of the truths we talked about this morning are not new. They're familiar for so many of us. But as we look into your law, it's like looking into a mirror and we see all the ways in which we fall short. Lord, we confess that we are guilty of stealing, even in the little ways. And it breaks your law. It is sin. 
it deserves judgment. But Father, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our crimes against you. And we thank you that you do offer mercy to all who will confess and believe in you. Lord, for those who may not know you today, I pray that your law would point them to Christ. That they would recognize their need and recognize that there's nothing they can do to make up for their past sins or to somehow atone for their own iniquities. Only Jesus can pay the debt. I pray that they would see their need, that they would simply ask for mercy like that thief on the cross. Lord, for those of us who know you, we are so thankful that you love and you save and you redeem thieves and adulterers and liars, those who dishonor their parents, those who don't worship you as they ought. We thank you, Lord, that despite our sin, despite the fact that we are guilty of these things, we can say, like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, such were some of us, but we've been washed. We've been sanctified. You cleanse us. We're deeply thankful for that this morning. And I pray that you would give us a zeal for good works, that as those who have received such mercy, as those who have received your gracious gift of yourself to save us, that we would be eager to share and to give and to sacrifice, that this church would be marked by a spirit of generosity. That we would no longer be those who steal, but rather those who work hard so that we may have something to share with others. That we would not be those who rob you, but those who delight to lay our gifts at your feet in a spirit of adoration and worship. Lord, you tell us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Help us to treasure Christ. And that this treasuring of Christ would be reflected in the way we live. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.